chapter 19. We'll be reading both Isaiah chapter 19 and 20 as they uh, all go together. Uh, this is the word of the living God that was written by Isaiah, but was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's give careful attention to the reading of it. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that's sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved." The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship 
with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go, loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Let's pray for understanding of God's word. Our Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you for uh, the word that is given to us and the word that anticipates you and prepares the way for you. And we pray now that as we reflect on your word, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give us understanding so that we might understand ourselves better to see the weakness of our own resources, but also see the overabundant gifting and provision you make for us and how your plan and purpose have been fulfilled in uh, the fullness of the ages in the person of Jesus. We praise you in his name. Amen. When life gets hard, who do you trust? Where do you put your hope? In our passage this morning, God replaces broken promises with an all-embracing hope. So those are our two pieces we'll look at this morning, broken promises and all-embracing hope. First, the broken promises. As we saw back in the earlier oracle against Moab a couple weeks ago, chapters 15 and 16, Hebrew authors like Isaiah often use a sandwich technique when they're writing. The big idea is in the middle of the passage, like the meat in the middle of your sandwich. But to enjoy the sandwich, you need the whole thing properly assembled or else it's going to be a big mess, right? So Egypt's broken promises are the bread that makes the meat of this sandwich so much more delicious as we dive into this passage. So let's actually start at the end because chapter 20 tells us when we are in the history of Israel and the story of Isaiah. Remember, Assyria is the superpower of the moment. They are ruthless, violent, greedy, cruel. And Judah's western neighbor, Philistia, of the, Phil the Philistines, has rebelled from Assyrian control. Ashdod, the city in this passage, is the capital of Philistia. And they have an ally to the south, Egypt. As we said last week, the kingdom of Cush has just absorbed Egypt 
to forge a united African kingdom we might call New Egypt or Greater Egypt or United Egypt. And this will be the first of many times that New Egypt tries to broker an alliance with Judah, the people of Isaiah, against Assyria. So the question will be continually before Judah, should you trust them? Should you trust Egypt? And Isaiah is amazingly consistent. No alliances, no compromise, don't trust allies or armies or political power. Trust God alone. God gives Isaiah a vivid sign to make the point in the passage this morning. So starting with chapter 20, the passage makes the most sense if we actually flip verses 1 and 2, because that's actually probably how the events unrolled in time. We know that the city of Astrod and the region of Felicia rebelled in the year 713 B.C. And at that time, it looks like verse 2, the Lord tells Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot, something that he did, according to verse 3, for three years. Eventually, in verse 1, King Sargon's Assyrian commander defeats Ashdod in uh, 711 B.C. Now, at that point, verse 3 might be on the very day of Ashdod's defeat so that the message has maximum psychological impact. The Lord prompts Isaiah to explain his bizarre behavior. Isaiah has been acting the part of a disgraced Captive. He has been stripped of every possession, even sandals and coat. And he's been dressed like Assyrians would dress or undress their captives. Verse 4, with buttocks uncovered. It's so appropriate that we have nursery starting back this week, isn't it? Yes, the Bible just talked about butts. When I read this passage, I can hear minions from Despicable Me in my head saying, ha ha, ha ha, butts. The Bible just said butts. So we let, let your kids that are here just enjoy the moment for just a sec. Uh, and then as we go on, just remember that the Bible is actually a lot less squeamish about body parts than we are, and God made people including our buttocks. But God also made us with parts of our body that we normally keep private. And that's actually the point of Isaiah's sign. We don't know every detail. We don't know if he walked around naked 24-7. That probably would have been very cold, even if it's not as cold as here this morning. Was this a once-a-day performance that he did over the course of three years? If you're a prophet, do you need some sort of license to do this in public uh, as part of your prophecy-related job? Uh, it seems strange that there was no um, uh, legal enforcement of, uh, of uh, restricting this uh, behavior. Isaiah may not have been completely naked, but he's not completely clothed for sure. He may be wearing something like those horrible hospital gowns that they give you uh, where they don't close in the back. And so if you need to walk down the hall to use the restroom, you have to hold them closed unless you, like Isaiah, want to walk around with buttocks uncovered. But the thing is, Isaiah here isn't going for the laugh. Actually, it's the very opposite. The Assyrians treated their captives this way out of calculated psychological intimidation. 
they intentionally paraded their captives to publicly expose and shame them. It was a calculated exercise of power meant to batter defeated victims into submission and to intimidate any potentially unruly subjects. It's quite possible, even likely, that some of us have endured shows of unchecked power and weaponized shame. The use either of words or violence, emotional manipulation or physical force to intimidate, exploit, and to control. If you haven't experienced that personally, whether you know it or not, you probably know many people in your life who have. Sometimes such manipulation is happening right in front of our eyes, but abusers are often skilled at cloaking, excusing, and justifying their behaviors. That's one of the sad lessons, if you've been following the news this past week, about the report published concerning the abuse committed by the late Ravi Zacharias. If you have been a victim and you have not spoken to somebody already, we'd love to help you as we've done for many others. But Isaiah takes the role of a victim and a captive to startle his neighbors uh, so that they don't put themselves at risk of becoming a victim and a captive themselves. On the day that Ashdod fell, Isaiah stands up in in public to explain why he's walked around for three years like a physically and emotionally battered captive. His fellow citizens might think they know what's coming, right? Isaiah's going to say, hey, I told you so. I knew Felicia was going to lose. Aren't you glad you listened to me? But that's not what he says, is it? The end of chapter 20, verses 3 to 6, Isaiah says his naked walkabout is a sign against not Felicia, but Egypt and Cush. Today, Ashdod Tomorrow, the supposedly great African empire that Judah might be tempted to look to. Isaiah's behavior is a plea that his fellow citizens not place their trust in Egypt's weak promises. Egypt can't help Judah because Egypt won't even be able to help Egypt. God knows that Judah resents Assyrian power. God knows that Assyria acts like a tyrant and a bully, but he also knows how we're wired, or rather how we're miswired. We are prone to run from the embrace of one danger into the arms of another equally dangerous situation. We are prone to seek shelter from an unhealthy situation in a new, different, but also unhealthy situation. All too often, we're guilty of one-directional fear. We're like horses with our blinders on. We see the scary thing right in front of us, but we're blind to the dangers that we're backing into. What fear quickly grips your imagination most often? And what's your reflex to that fear? Is it possible that your reflex to your fears are sending you straight into some other equally bad danger? Right? It's easier to get stabbed in the back than in the front. You die either way, right? You're more likely to fall off a cliff you don't see because you're walking backwards than the one you see right in front of you, right? 
But Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't want our heads turned by either Assyria or Egypt. Isaiah wants our heads turned by the new attractive, uh, the new attractive option. He doesn't want them turned there any more than the old frightening option. So in chapter 19, God tries to expose Egypt's slick packaging and focus group tested advertising to their potential allies. And that's why God exposes the three great weaknesses of Egypt in the first half of chapter 19. Weakness number one is outlined in verses one through four. Egypt's religion is not only false, but also useless. Egyptians are divided among themselves, and their religious leaders are powerless to overcome those divisions. Isaiah says that you can't make either a rational argument or a pragmatic argument for Egypt's religious faith. Weakness number two, verses five to 10, is Egypt's over-dependence upon the Nile River. The Nile was the greatest natural resource of Egypt, but the Nile was also a fragile source of strength. Future droughts will devastate Egyptian economic life, much like the natural disasters which God miraculously struck Egypt with centuries earlier. We've been reminded recently of how our own uh, economy is surprisingly fragile when tested, that totters in the face of a global pandemic or this past week's unusually harsh winter weather in so many parts of our nation. Individually, we each, like Egypt, trust in our own strength until our fragility is revealed by an injury or a diagnosis or a pink slip. Egypt's false wisdom uh, in verses 11 to 15 is her third great weakness. They're an ancient, proud civilization. Egyptians celebrated their own wisdom. In fact, there's even a portion in the book of Proverbs that includes at least one section in chapters 22 to 24 that most biblical scholars will recognize is a close adaptation of a previous Egyptian source text. That's not actually a problem if we know that all wisdom and truth comes from the Lord and God's people recognize God's truth when they see it wherever they hear it. Nonetheless, Egyptian wise men have become deluded, verse 13. They're spouting stupid counsel, verse 11. Uh, it sounds like today. Uh, that leaves their nation staggering like a drunken man in his own vomit. Again, Isaiah has no problems being vivid. The core problem with Egyptian wisdom is in verse 12. They don't know what the Lord has purposed. Back in chapter 14, God said, as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, not in Egypt, not in Philistia. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. Egypt's plan is to eclipse Assyria, like Rome later eclipsed Greece, or America has uh, more recently eclipsed the British Empire, and as we can be sure some nation will eventually eclipse American dominance if Jesus doesn't come back first. But Egypt's plan for Egypt isn't God's plan for Egypt. When we try to work at cross purposes with God, it will never go well for us because he's God and we're not. So if there's a conflict of purposes, it's only going to fall one way. God would vindicate uh, Isaiah's counsel to avoid Egyptian entanglements. Egypt wasn't destroyed 
for another 40 years, but they were defeated in 671 B.C. And until then, the experience of Ashdod would serve as a cautionary tale to Judah. In fact, after his defeat, Yamani, the king of Ashdod, fled to Egypt, his ally. But the Egyptians were so cowed by Sargon's military might that they simply handed Yamani back to Assyria to save their own skins. Broken promises indeed. Instead of Egypt's broken promises, in the second half of chapter 19, God discloses a better future than either Egypt or Assyria can offer to Judah, but a better future that actually includes Israel and Egypt and Assyria all together, an all-embracing hope that encompasses all of them and all of us who trust in the person of Jesus. In that day appears here six times in ten verses. It's actually the single highest frequency usage of that phrase in the entire book of Isaiah. It's both a time marker for God's ultimate future as well as Isaiah's version of multiple exclamation points because he doesn't have punctuation in ancient Hebrew. In Isaiah, that day is one of two things. It's either terrible if you're against God and God is against you, or it's wonderful if God is for you. Here it starts at first as if it will be terrible for Egypt. The first stanza, verses 16 and 17, Egypt's overconfident macho men are unmanned by the fear of the overwhelming power and purpose of God. But the second stanza on, starting with verse 18, reveals that that fear is awe rather than terror. Pledges of allegiance to the God of Israel are heard in Hebrew throughout Egyptian cities, including the city of destruction, which uh, is probably a reference to the city of the sun, Heliopolis. Even in the very city of the Egyptian god, sun god Ray, once Egypt's highest deity, Yahweh of armies will be worshipped instead. There will be altars built in the midst of Egypt, like the altars that Abraham and Jacob built to the Lord in the promised land. A pillar will stand at the border between Egypt and Israel, just like the pillar that was built at the Jordan River as a, a memorial to the shared faith of the tribes that are on each side of the Jordan River. So, uh, in this, so also this new pillar will symbolize that both Egypt and Israel now share the same faith in Israel's God. Just as God answered Israel's cries for deliverance from their ancient Egyptian slave masters, so God will answer when Egypt cries out for a man to deliver them. And God will send them a savior and defender, a new Moses. These images from Israel's past transposed into Egypt's future are meant to anticipate the central reality of God's purposes. Verse 21, Egypt will know the Lord. What is Judah doing, putting their hope and trust in Egypt when it's God's purpose to bring Egypt to himself? In the course of history, Egypt spent centuries as one of the most vibrant centers of Christianity. They're still one of the largest Christian churches in uh, the Mideast and in North Africa in that country. About a thousand years after Isaiah, the Christian Egyptian Cyril of Alexandria would write, 
The remarkable things proclaimed long ago by the prophet have in these last times taken place. For today there is, in the words of the prophet, an altar to the Lord in Egypt. Indeed, there are so many altars, referring to churches, in Egypt that they cannot be counted. For the inhabitants of Egypt have believed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, the prophet promises that the Lord will send them a Savior. Who is this man if not the Christ? He is the divine Logos, the only begotten of God, who appeared in human form to save not only the Egyptians, but also the whole world, says Cyril, the Egyptian of Alexandria. But also the whole world, which is exactly the point of this divine superhighway. Instead of fortifications, there are throughways. Isaiah depicts a future world of peaceful coexistence between these once rival superpowers, Assyria and Egypt. And in this future, there is freedom of movement and open borders. This is not merely part of some political utopia, but a symbol of common worship and shared faith, a new unity of such robustness that ancient hostilities are at last resolved and no one is jockeying any longer for power and for prestige. And Israel fulfills her destiny declared by God to her ancestor Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will bless you so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Traditional arch enemies and oppressors become co-religionists and fellow believers as the gospel overrides our ancient deep-seated hostilities through our mutual union in the person of Christ. This vision should humble those of us who might think that we're in God's in-crowd. Israel is still included, but she's simply on equal footing with Egypt and Assyria. This vision should also encourage those of us who might think we're on God's naughty list in his out-crowd. Did he sound pleased with Egypt in the rest of this passage? Not at all. Does he approve of Assyria's bullying? We've seen already and we'll see lots more that he does not approve of it at all. And he will turn and punish them for the way they've treated others. For that matter, does Israel deserve his favor? No. If anything, they have misused and wasted their special access to God that he gave them. Just as we, who are believers, often misuse and waste our special access. And that's why this glorious future relies on God's initiative and his grace. This future which we are now enjoying, which is why we study here uh, the words of the ancient Hebrews, the words of Isaiah, why we sing praises to the God of Israel. He's the one that approaches us, and he changes our relationship with him. Verse 21, God will make himself known to the Egyptians, and that's when they then know him. Verse 25, God declares his blessing on Israel, and through Israel and on Egypt, God is the one who claims Egypt for his people and claims Assyria as the work of his hands and claims Israel as his inheritance. Only a relationship with God based on his initiative and his grace could do what this passage describes. Only 
God's grace and initiative could unite men and women across all other divisions and barriers. Because if it isn't by grace, then our relationship with God must depend upon something distinctive about us, whether it is a personal accomplishment or a personal characteristic. And whatever uh, our relationship depends upon other than God's grace, there will be some other person who will not have that accomplishment or who will not have that personal characteristic. And so if you think of God that way and you relate to God that way, you will then, as a result, not extend grace to people who lack the accomplishments and the characteristics that you think put you on good footing with God. But that's not how he operates. The, Cro the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who is also a professor at uh, Yale for a number of years now, explores this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He actually wrote in the mid-90s, mid to early 90s, while he had recently watched two tragedies unfold. In the U.S., there had been protests and riots convulsing American cities after the then novel release of videotape footage of the arrest and beating of Rodney King. While at the same time, Wolf's homeland, Yugoslavia, was fracturing into warring ethnic enclaves and civil war. And his book dwells on the power of the gospel to combine God's judgment and forgiveness. And Wolf uses the physical act of embracing, the physical act that so many of us long to enjoy with one another, the physical act of embrace as a tangible expression of forgiveness and reconciliation. And he was presenting his ideas at one conference, and someone challenged him and said, so are you willing to embrace a Chetnik? And Chetnik were the Serbans, Serbian soldiers who were committing war atrocities against Wolf's own fellow Croatians. And Wolf answered honestly, no. But I think that in the gospel I'm supposed to be able to. As hard as it was for him to imagine doing, he was convinced that that is the intended transforming power of Jesus and the gospel. For two millennia, we have seen the unique power of Jesus to transcend human divisions. And the Christian hope is a world made new where those united by faith in Jesus will dwell together in perfect harmony, enjoying one another, and even more gloriously enjoying the very presence of the God of Israel, Yahweh of armies, the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being brought into that perfect enjoyment of one another as Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly have enjoyed each other from before creation and in all eternity. In Jesus, God has revealed his purpose for all of history, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus never deviated from God's plans, even though it meant that he would suffer psychological harassment and public humiliation. He would be publicly stripped bare by soldiers, to be exposed and tortured and hung naked on a cross. But he accepted that suffering for us, knowing, as Jesus said, that when I am lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all nations to me. And in the midst of it, he prayed even for his tormentors, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. No matter how well-intentioned, anyone or anything that we put our trust and our hope in other than this God will disappoint, leaving us with empty handfuls of broken promises. But in Christ, God gives us an all-embracing hope, a hope robust enough to overcome our petty hatreds and our deep animosities so that we might come to embrace our old enemies as new friends. Because the God who we had treated as our enemy has embraced us in Christ. Let's pray and give thanks. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for this glorious passage. Uh, as we see your purposes unfold in history, it can be confusing. There's so much going on. There's so much for which our heart breaks. Even as our heart breaks for so much of what you disclose as your purposes on uh, un raveling in history. Father, we thank you and praise you that you reveal to us that behind all of it, there is a plan and there is a purpose. If we don't even, even though we don't see how all of the pieces connect and all, all of the strands are woven together, we thank you that your purpose and plan is to embrace to yourself a people who do not deserve your grace, but upon whom you show your love undeservedly, upon whom you make yourself known. And we pray, Father, that those of us who know you, you would protect from putting our hope in other places. And those of us who have not yet been given this knowledge, that you would work by your Holy Spirit and give the gift of faith in the knowledge of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.